Chapter Eighteen, Part Two of the Black Flemings by Kathleen Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen, Part Two. Flora's voice stopped abruptly with the effect of an interruption. I hated her, she said simply after a moment and was still. Ah, yes, I did, David. She added suddenly, her eyes always closed and as if David had protested. I hated her. I managed her house. I answered the inquiries of anybody who came to call. I talked about her with Roger when he was anxious, and I hated her. She made him miserable. She was a mixture of a child and a nun. She hated life, hated marriage. Lily and I were ready enough for it, watching our friends marry, and be widowed, and marry again. But this girl loathed her wifehood, her position, her husband, and her husband was Roger Fleming. He couldn't kiss her but what she would shut those dark, sad eyes of hers and offer her cheek like a child. I remember her, shutting her eyes and turning her face away when we would kiss her, Tom said, clearing his throat. Whether she actually wrote to her mother asking for a reconciliation or not, I don't know, Flora resumed. Roger had forbidden her to truckle, as he called it. He felt that she must wait for advances from her mother. They never quarreled about it, but I heard her say sometimes, I wish my mother would walk in, and heard Roger answer her, not unkindly, but half-jokingly, not into my house. One day, when they had been married a few months, he was talking to me about his brother Will. Why don't you marry Will, Flo? he said to me, with a sort of laugh. "'Good enough for the poor relation,' I said, trying to laugh back. But I was bitter. Then life was utterly hateful to me. "'Why, how can you remember?' he said, with a look that told me that he knew that he himself, and that old unhappy love of mine for him, was keeping me dark and angry and fuming about wastewater for the best years of my life. "'I may marry Will,' I said, trembling all over and a few months later I did, although the idea had never come into my mind until that day. Not that I didn't love your father, Sylvia. I did. Everyone loved poor Will, and he had loved me a long, long time. Will and I were married, and Roger gave his brother a handsome check, which Will put into a patent for a bed couch. Not that it mattered. Not that it mattered, Flora's tired voice said drearily and was silent. Part of the time we lived at Wastewater, she resumed, and sometimes when Will was trying one of his new jobs, we had an apartment in Boston. Lily was sometimes with us, and sometimes she and Cecily and Roger went on short trips. They went to Bermuda one spring, I remember. Cecily was having one of her better times. Then Roger would come to me, distressed. Cecily was having those hateful pains again. She would come into a Boston hospital for an operation, and I would go to see her every day, and bring her and her nurses back to Wastewater and stay for a while, until she felt stronger. Sylvia was born in Boston, but a few weeks later we came to Wastewater, and both Roger and his wife grew so fond of her that I had an excuse for almost never leaving although I kept my little Boston flat. Will was in the West for almost two years, working in Portland and Oakland and Los Angeles, 
and sometimes we would talk as if the baby and I might join him there. But as Cecily grew no stronger, and poor little Lily began to show signs of a sort of, well, they called it passive melancholia, and as the baby grew to be everybody's plaything, she opened her sunken eyes and fixed them with the shadow of a dark smile upon Sylvia's stricken and acutely attentive face. Mama, Sylvia breathed, bowing her dark head over her mother's hand. Poor little Silver, as Roger used to call you, Flora said tenderly. I did it for you, dear, or at least I meant it for you. But it was never deliberate. It was all an accident. She sank into quiet and almost immediately breathed as if she were deeply asleep. Sylvia, not changing her position by a hair's breadth, signaled to the others a question as to the propriety of their slipping away. But no one had stirred when Flora quite simply opened her eyes and said in a relieved tone, I want you to know everything. You don't blame me too much, Sylvia. Have I told you, she added, anxious and alarmed, did I tell you about Gabriella? Mama, darling, tomorrow. No, no, Flora said feverishly. Today. I had told you of my marrying, yes, and that poor little Lily seemed so upset. She had always been a forlorn, sentimental little thing, Lily. There had been different admirers, and she always took them seriously weeping and questioning herself and her motives until my mother and I used to want to shake her. But after my mother's death, and your mother's death, David, and when you boys went off to school, she became gently melancholy, yet not always sad either, but wandering a little, and strange. There was a handsome, good-for-nothing sort of fellow hanging about at Tinsel's in Keyport then. Charpentier, his name was, he was an agent for something, if he was anything. He and Lily used to walk along the cliff road, and sometimes she would cry and tell Cecily that he was as fine a gentleman as any man she knew, only unfortunate, that sort of thing. I didn't like it, but I dreaded telling Roger, for he was so quickly roused to anger, and I thought he might horsewhip the man and drive Lily clean out of her senses. Well, one day, when Sylvia was almost three, and Will had been in the West for six months or so, and when Cecily was all upset and lying on the couch like a little waxen ghost, Margaret Nolan came to me. This same Margaret we have now. She was an old servant here even then, and shaking all over and crying. Poor Margaret! She told me that she was worried about Miss Lily. If that rough in Charpentier has taken advantage of her, poor little wandering witted thing that she is, I think they'll hang him, she said. I was sick with the shame and the fright of it. I knew Roger would go after any man that touched one of his household with a revolver. It was all terrifying to me, but I told Margaret, whom poor Lily had taken into her confidence, to go after the man Charpentier, find out if he could marry Lily and keep the whole thing absolutely secret. It meant banishment for Lily from Cecily's presence. I knew that, for Cecily had a horror of such things, had a horror even of little babies and their needs, used to shut her eyes with a sort of sickness if I nursed Sylvia, or discussed one of her little illnesses in her room. Such a thing as this would have revolted her. 
Margaret found out that Charpentier had disappeared, and all our efforts to get hold of him, then or since, were useless. He had no ties, no responsibilities. Nobody cared whether he lived or died. He simply went away. So a few weeks went by, and I was sick with anxiety and shame. Lily, I used to marvel at it, was perfectly serene and quiet. She was so simple, poor soul, that she would go into the village and buy pink baby ribbons. God alone knows how many hints she gave or whom she told. Finally, I planned to take her to my apartment in Boston, live quietly there with the baby, that is, my Sylvia, and perhaps one other servant, and tell Roger and Cecily that Lily wanted to study art or music. Afterward, we could place her poor baby in some good institution, and then maybe I could tell Roger. That was August, late July and August. And that was the August that Tom ran away from school. She opened her eyes, looked about the circle. We didn't hear of it until three days later, Flora went on presently, addressing herself now to Tom. For that master you had was positive that he would find you. After three days he telegraphed Roger, Is your son with you? Missing since Monday morning. Roger, poor fellow, was proud at first. His son, fourteen years old, had run away to sea. The young monkey? He ought to be thrashed for this, he would say, chuckling. He notified the police and went down to New York that week, getting the whole machinery in motion. You'll not thrash him, I used to say. You'll give him a new bicycle. That'll be your thrashing. Proud, eh? Tom interrupted the narrative with a grin. Oh, yes, just at first. But after a few weeks, perhaps not so long, he began to speak more seriously. He couldn't have given us all the slip. He isn't more than a child, he would say, as he came and went. I told them I was fifteen, Tom contributed. All I did was sign up with the whaling fleet. I thought it all out. The Saturday before, on a school hike, I shipped a bundle to New York Harbor. There were some clothes in it that I didn't want. It was all a blind. And in my note to Dad I said that I had seen the Panama fruit boats going out, and they made me sick to get to sea. We found the bundle and we searched the fruit boats, but we never got trace of you, Flora said. I was an ass, and I got it pretty well bumped out of me, Tom said, musingly. A lot they cared who I was, on old Jensen's Valker. A fellow named Kelly went overboard that first run, and I went into Montreal three months later, with Kit Kelly's papers. Kelly and I stuck together until he got married. Everyone always called me Kit. I never took any special trouble then to hide myself. I always thought I'd come home, my next shore leave. Roger spent the rest of his life hunting you, Flora said. He was never at home for more than a few weeks, or a few days at a time. After that, and we all knew Cecily was happier when he was away. She had been much better that spring. He and she had gone to Old Point Comfort, and she had seemed much more human, somehow. But this autumn she was wretched, sad and worried about herself, and she had begun to say again, even to him, what she had often said to Lily and me. My marriage was a sin. 
all marriage is not wrong but god intended me for a life of prayer and holiness and what have i accomplished by disobeying the guidance of my own conscience this sort of thing made roger furious and i could see it if she could not we'd have a fine world if you had your way sis he said to her once where would the younger generation come from oh roger don't she would say he would look at her look at me shrug and smile but presently i would see into what impatient lines his face would fall it would have been a calamity for her to have a child he said to me one day we would surely have had two children on our hands then once he had told me bitterly and resentfully that her hasty and ill-considered marriage was killing her she was seventeen in years when we were married he said but i can understand her mother's fury now she was about nine years old where life was concerned a mystic a child saint torturing herself with scruples and with half assimilated scraps of theology and mysticism that was the situation here at wastewater that september when roger had word from the police at guam that a boy who might have been tom was there as a matter of fact this was that first false tom who had them all deceived for so long roger went off to san francisco possibly to sail as indeed he did finally sail for the orient will my husband had been away almost a year david here was in boarding school left alone with cecily and lily i did not dare risk lily's baby being born in wastewater it would have started any amount of talk and although poor lily was not responsible and although margaret had been spreading hints as to lily's having secretly married this sharp and jay it seemed wiser not to have the whole thing here lily went into my boston apartment and i got her a good practical nurse and her baby was born months too soon and died within a few minutes died said more than one of the young voices died indeed it never breathed at all lily was very ill and went as is not uncommon in such cases into a sort of low fever like the old brain fever and she was near death for a long long time i lived with her and the nurse and a good servant named carrie in the boston apartment for cecily had grown worse by that time and the crochester doctor had quite frankly diagnosed her trouble as a tumor we had heard that word before many times but roger would never believe it cecily believed it though and she was furious at the crochester man because he would not operate in her husband's absence so we had dismissed the crochester doctor always a hard thing to do and cecily told him frankly that she wanted to come into boston and stay at a hospital for observation she was at st john's only a few blocks from my apartment and i went to see her every morning before luncheon and every late afternoon she seemed more cheerful in the hospital and the doctors were hopeful that a few weeks of it would make a new woman of her one day about a week after lily's poor little baby had come and gone the old doctor in whom cecily specially trusted the man who had her in charge walked down the hospital steps and into the park with me and we had a long talk sitting on a park bench he told me then and you may imagine what i felt when i heard it 
that there was every probability that young mrs roger fleming was about to become a mother for a while i was stupefied i asked him to have a consultation he said no that was not necessary now and might distress her she had he gathered from hints to the nurse she had a certain curious dislike for the idea of motherhood dislike doctor i said i believe it would kill her if she did not kill herself and i tried to give him some idea of her character what a strange half-child half-mystic she was he listened to me very gravely it was important he said not to shock her that was the first time i ever heard of a shock as an actual danger to a sick person i remember he explained it carefully cecily did not have the vitality of a hummingbird he said if we could get a hold of the husband i had to go on i explained that her husband was much older was in fact twenty-three or four years older and that in the true sense she did not love him and i said that i was sure that if she were to have a baby her love for it would come with a child i said all the usual things and he agreed with me he told me the circumstance of the false diagnosis was unusual but it had happened before happened in his practice before there was of course a possibility now that he was mistaken that it was what the other doctors had always supposed and there was every probability that the baby would not live under the curious circumstances but it seemed cruel not to give young mrs fleming this hope it would be no hope to her i said whatever the child if it lived might come to mean to her this prospect would make her absolutely ill we agreed that for a while therefore nothing must be said about it but it was only ten days later that they took cecily up to the surgery and her baby two months too soon was born she was dying they thought that night and there seemed every probability that the baby would die too a nice little nurse there told me that she wanted to give the child lay baptism and i made no objection she asked me what name and i said mary it was the first name i thought of i'll name her that and my name she said i'll call her mary gabriella me said gabriella fleming in a sharp whisper that echoed like a pistol shot in the room her dilated eyes moved to david's face i told you last night gay david said gently you told me yes but i thought my mother i thought lily i only thought that she had loved uncle roger instead of the man charpentier the girl stammered i-i'm their child she whispered she got to her feet her eyes upon the distance her mouth working and walked bewilderedly to the door mamma sylvia said sharply as flora moaned and seemed to contract into something smaller than her already shrunken self as she sank deep into the white pillow tom give me that medicine sylvia commanded in a frightened low tone bring her back david flora said struggling to raise herself and following gabriella with her eyes she must hear gay david said at the girl's elbow she gave him a dazed look devoid of any expression whatsoever aunt flora wants us all to listen the man said without protest she came back to her place at the bedside 
the sunset was dying from the walls now and a dull wintry chill was falling through the cold dark afternoon air flora looked fixedly at gabriella who pale and tense with a bitten lower lip and star sapphire eyes widened with excitement and pain never moved her gaze from her face cecily was so ill said flora after a moment that for two or three days they feared for her life i got a good nurse and stayed at the hospital myself and sent the tiny baby to my apartment when she was about nine days old trying all the time to get in touch with roger in san francisco he had sailed then for guam but we did not know that until weeks later when the telegrams all came back but there was no attempt at secrecy the old doctor told me that he had tried kindly and gently to inform young mrs fleming of the birth of a child that indeed she had some hazy recollections of the crisis of her illness before the anaesthetic but that she had given no sign of understanding him i rented the furnished apartment next to mine and brought her there she looked dying then as she was she lay perfectly passive and motionless all day sometimes crying sometimes reading only taking a little tea or a little soup one day i came home and she had put on her wrapper and come into lily's room lily was better and was sitting up and i had begun to feel as one does feel in such emergencies that i might weather this time strange and terrible as it was sylvia was on the floor with a doll and the nurse had brought the new baby in in her basket to get the sunshine in the window there cecily was crying crying hysterically but even that much emotion seemed to me a good sign lily was lying on the bed and cecily kneeling beside her with her face buried against her knees i had been utterly dissatisfied with cecily's nurse who was a careless neglectful creature and i was furious to see that she had let her patient get out of bed at all cecily i said you must not excitement like this will be dangerous to you lily looked at me with that bright childish smile she had had since her illness cecily has been looking at my baby flo she said happily isn't it a sweet baby flo it couldn't be wrong to have a sweet baby like that could it the servant carrie looked at me significantly and i saw that salvation for cecily might lie here cecily had been looking into my eyes now she buried her face again and burst out in a sort of whisper oh my god i thank thee oh my god how good thou art i am so grateful i am so humbly grateful we got her back to bed and when we were alone she said to me flora i must tell you something i can tell you now for i am going to die and god has forgiven me i could not give my life to any other soul flora and i could not die knowing that my sins would be visited on a poor little baby no no i could not bear that they told me the doctor told me at the hospital or i dreamed it on that terrible night of the operation she said flora did you know that i thought i had a child that night no or they told me i did she said beginning to be frightened again don't bother your head about it now cecily i said just get well so that when roger comes back 
She shuddered at Roger's name and began to get excited. I will be dead before that, and God will have forgiven me, Flora, she said. Ah, you don't think I was a sinner, but I was. Before I ever took my marriage vow, I had taken another, when I was only fourteen years old. Another girl and I at the convent had taken a solemn oath to God that we would never marry. Poor child, breathed Gabriella's pale lips involuntarily. Poor child, Flora echoed, without opening her eyes. Her voice was so weak that David held water to her mouth, and she drank with difficulty. Poor little Cecily! She said that, when she had first come to Wastewater, she had no thought of lovers or love in her mind. That she had been bewildered and astonished at the emotion Roger had almost at once roused in her, but that she had never thought of it as love. That all her thoughts and senses had been in a wild confusion, culminating on the day that he and she drove into Minford, beyond Tinsel's, quite simply, and that Roger, who knew the justice there, got a special license and they were married. That night she went quite simply away from her mother's room, expecting to be questioned in the morning. But her mother did not miss her. Cecily was quietly dressing when her mother awakened the next day. She said she remembered her vow that day, and when she came to this part, I thought she was going to die. She said quite seriously that she had had not one single happy moment since, and I suppose when Roger laughed at her scruples, as he did laugh, he broke her heart. I told her that no minor child could take a valid vow of that sort, and that indeed her very marriage might be questioned, since her age had been given as nineteen. No use. She believed me only enough to say that no irregularity in her license could possibly make her child more accursed than she would feel a child of hers to be. But I understand now. I never had a child. It's Lily's child, she said, over and over again, with so much deep thankfulness that I could only be thankful too. Lily told me all about it, she said, so humbly and tenderly, and she is no worse a sinner than I, less, perhaps, for she loved and I did not. I dismissed the nurse that afternoon, as it chanced, and sent for a nurse we had had from Crochester, Hannah Rosecrantz, a fine girl. She came the next day, and I told her, naturally, the whole truth, but that both my poor Lily and Mrs. Fleming must be treated with the utmost consideration until Mr. Fleming came home. Cecily was now all anxiety to get back to Wastewater. She said that she never wanted to see again the cruel old doctor who had frightened her so. I explained the situation to him, and presently we all came back to Wastewater, leaving Carrie behind us simply because she did not want to come. Hannah Rosecrantz was engaged to be married. She was with us only a few weeks, and then went to Australia where her husband has become well-to-do. She idolized the baby, and loved Lily, too, but I suppose servant fashion. She gave the other servants to believe that there was something amiss. Anyway, it was always Miss Lily's baby from the very first. Lily had told Margaret about her troubles months before, and I was never in any doubt what Margaret thought. As for Cecily, she seemed to think it settled. 
our crochester doctor was recalled but there was nothing he could do except keep her quiet she was sinking very fast she died when gabriella was only seven or eight weeks old roger got home too late the day before the funeral but even then i thought that any accident might show him the truth i told myself that in all this confusion it would only sadden him more i i don't know now what i thought or why i did what i did but lily and the baby and margaret had their own suite of rooms and roger naturally paid little attention to them in his grief for his wife he saw the baby took it for granted she was lily's and i told myself that sometime i would of course tell him the whole story or somebody would he would meet the old doctor who had attended cecily or the doctor who had attended lily in boston or he might run across carrie or hannah rosecrans cecily was buried here where we buried lily only last spring roger went off on his searches came home gray-headed and so changed went off again and i never told him i had begun it to protect cecily to comfort lily i never had planned it it all seemed to come about of itself and for the first six years of her life gabriella called lily mama then lily became very bad and we put her in a sanitarium and she never knew and then will fleming my husband died and i thought fool that i was flora added after a pause with infinite fatigue and a sort of self-contempt in her voice i cared for roger even then i cared for him even then i was widowed and he twice a widower he loved my child but he loved gabriella as well i could not i could not put cecily fleming's child ahead of mine roger needed me he turned to me for everything I could not see his little girl placed ahead of me, pushing me out of his life. I couldn't, she said more loudly, choking. I had given my life to him, my whole life. He had trampled me under his feet. Gabriella was fair. She was like Cecily's mother. She was a beautiful baby. I knew he would give his whole heart to her, live for her one day he said that he was going to change his will make a generous provision for lily's poor little girl and i was glad it wasn't money that mattered to me i would have starved for him he said that in case his boy never came back the little girl should share and share alike like sisters and i was glad there was never any plan in what i did i used to think that any hour might change it any chance word I knew that Roger had written a will in Janet's day, when Tom was a baby, and when he might have had half a dozen other children, but after this talk he had a good many interviews with his lawyer, and I supposed that he had done what he said. He was not here very much. I came to believe that he hated the old place, and me, and Lily, and everything that reminded him that he had once been young and free, with the world at his feet i used to think that even if he had found tom he would have gone on wandering but at last when he came home it was to die he died you remember david quite quietly and without pain one summer day he had been warned of his heart 
he was packing to go off to panama a doctor there had written that there was a young fellow just answering tom's description with with whatever it is when a man loses all memory amnesia a few days later we read the will you remember david on such a hot morning in the library sylvia and gabriella were playing outside on the terrace where the hydrangeas are old judge baron had come down from the city we read the will and i knew then what i had done gabriella was not mentioned gabriella was not mentioned the will stood as it had stood when he wrote it when tom was a baby everything everything to his child or children and there was a codicil dated about the time of his last return home giving everything everything to sylvia in case tom did not come back my god my god flora whispered under her breath and lay still i had wanted it all my life and now i had it she said after a while in a voice that was weakening weakening from moment to moment and yet full of passion and fire still i had it all judge baron went away david went away i was alone with sylvia and little gabriella and wastewater was mine i remember in the first long warm afternoon that i walked slowly through it from room to room and thought that i had survived them all uncle tom roger janet cecily will all all the black flemings gone except me i had only to keep silent and my child would be rich i think that's all she added opening her sunken dark eyes and fixing them steadily upon david's face that explains it all doesn't it i have lived in fear i knew the old doctor was dead but i used to lie in the nights imagining that he had happened to tell someone someone who was drawing nearer and nearer to my life every moment hannah rosecrowns the carry we had in boston the doctor lily had whose very name i can't remember they all knew any day might have brought them back to me with their questions i used to imagine that i might go to jail but i never was anything else but in jail all my life long end of chapter eighteen chapter nineteen of the black flemings by kathleen norris this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nineteen she stopped and after a long minute of silence the young persons looked at each other tom had been sitting throughout in a low chair with his hands locked now he merely grinned nervously and shrugged david's face was stern and grave he had folded his arms and had been staring ahead of him with a faint frown now his eyes moved about the circle and returned to space sylvia's vivid dark face with its white white skin was drained of color her eyes looked tortured and she was breathing fast as she knelt beside the bed she half supported her mother upon her arm her anxious and stricken face close to the leaden ghastly face upon the pillow gabriella had been kneeling too as she listened but at the end she rose and walked to the little window outside in the winter dusk lay the soaked blackened ruins of the old stables 
those clean big airy stables that gabriella had so loved as a little girl nearer against the angle of the house lay the wreck of the windmill the great rusty hoops and singed wood piled almost as high as the window beyond all were the bare winter woods looking desolate and forlorn in the cool gray light and on the right brimmed and lowered the steely surface of a cold and unfriendly sea as gabriella stood there her weary heart and mind whirled hither and thither by a hundred conflicting thoughts in a very storm of pity and pain the island lights suddenly pricked through the dove gray of the gloom and flashed their pinkish radiance against the gaining and prevailing shadows the girl's thoughts traveled to them idly she thought of little ships cutting their way through the trackless waters and dark-faced rough men twisting the spokes of the little wheels and peering out across the waves to find that steadily pulsating flash somebody had lighted a light in the room behind her she saw her own reflection slender aureoled against the dark night david touched her arm a sudden bitter need of tears possessed her and her breast swelled but she only raised her eyes to his questioningly and bit her lip to steady it aunt flora wants to speak to you gay the girl could tell by david's tone that he had said it before he gently turned her toward the bed she looked bewilderedly at tom who was busy at the lamp and at sylvia who stood at the foot of the bed like a person in a dream she went slowly toward flora and knelt down beside her flora reached out hard and anxious fingers and gripped the girl's hand i told david this yesterday he told you and tom he was to tell you when the fire came flora whispered he did tell us gabriella's beautiful voice sounded childish and husky in contrast to the other's weak voice but i thought i thought that my mother lily was still my mother and that uncle roger was my father that i had no right to call him father it seems her lip shook again it seems that i might have had a father she faltered her voice thickened and stopped she raised her eyes appealingly almost apologetically to david who was watching closely i never had anyone she said with suddenly brimming eyes flora spoke and immediately afterward in a strange muse that was not hearing gabriella heard sylvia give a sort of cry and then david leaned over her and said tenderly gay she is still very ill dear if you can if i can what david she repeated confused her beautiful eyes wide and anxious she wants you to forgive her gabriella david answered gabriella still appeared bewildered she looked from one face to another yes i will of course i will she said quickly and simply then tell her so gabriella gabriella bent her gaze upon her aunt's sunken face a blot against the white pillows and flora fixed upon her the tragic look of her darkening eyes i'm sorry aunt flora gabriella stammered in tears i know i know how hard it must have been for you i am so sorry you will forgive me gabriella flora whispered feverishly in all the years to come you will not hate me 
you have grown to be a lovely woman i did not harm you i might have harmed you but it was sylvia in the end who paid for what i did i will never hate you gabriella said slowly and steadily like a child repeating a lesson it was because i loved him so said flora's drawn dark mouth in a whisper she sank back seemed to be sinking away from earth and the things of earth altogether god bless you gabriella you have made it easy for me to die she added in the mere breadth of a voice i am so sorry gay said with a great sob and she buried her face against the coverlet and burst into crying i'm so sorry that he was unkind to you and that you could not forgive him and forgive me she sobbed we might have been we might all have been so happy we might have been so happy flora's lips repeated no other muscle of her bloodless face and shut eyes moved god bless you gabriella she whispered again as gabriella drawn away by david's hand stopped to lay a wet cheek against hers and kiss her in farewell the girl halfway to the door and hardly conscious of what she was doing suddenly wrenched herself free and went back to the bed she fell on her knees and catching the languid dark hand put it to her lips aunt flora indeed i forgive you she said weeping from my heart i am so sorry you were so unhappy that they all hurt you and failed you so dear aunt flora sylvia was on her knees on the other side and crying as bitterly as gabriella when david led the younger girl away he and margaret established her upon a downstairs sofa with cushions and covers before the fire and she lay there in a dreamy state not talking hardly thinking as the strange panorama of the last twenty-four hours wheeled through her weary head she saw flora only once again and that was at the end at seven o'clock at ten tom drove them to crochester and they boarded the boston train sylvia veiled and clinging tightly to tom's arm gabriella and old margaret guiding them through the interested warm train to the privacy of their drawing-room gabriella's last look at wastewater had shown her only bare trees blackened masses of ruins darker than the prevailing dark open levels where the stately walls had been a cold moon had been shining brightly upon the sea had thrown the shadows of leafless bushes in a lacework across the bare brown space of the lawn and against the steady rush and retreat of the short waves she had heard the tumbling cascading sound of some bit of wall collapsing upon the general collapse toward the distant west wall beyond the woods the changed perspective had left a long vista free and gabriella could see the white gravestones in the moonlight graves and ruins ashes and bare branches and beside them the unchanged restless sea and above them the unfeeling moonlight the child of wastewater looked back with a great gravity a great solemnity in her heart there had been laughter here music and voices wastewater had had a housewarming more than a hundred years before when beautiful women in the capes and high-waisted gowns of the empire days had been driven in jingling great coaches all the way from boston city to dance and rejoice with the young master of the mansion 
there had been a first Roger, in the buff and blue of the Revolution, Colonel Fleming, as black and as handsome as any of them, and there had been his son Tom, the good-hearted Tom who had come all the way to Brookline to find a cousin's disconsolate little widow, with her sewing machine, and her girl babies, and offer them a home. And there had been Tom's son Roger, handsomest and most dashing of them all, David's young mother, who was to win his heart, and that shadowy little Cecily, who must now be mother in Gabriella's thoughts. Aunt Flora always watching jealously, Aunt Lily tearful and singing her romantic little songs, gallant little Tom reading his sea stories on the old nursery window-sill, dark little proud Sylvia with her glossy curls, baby gay herself, wistful and alone. They all seemed to pass before the girl's eyes in a long and haunting procession, crying as they went that they had always failed, even here, in all this wealth and beauty, to find happiness and peace. I will be happy, Gabriella had sworn to herself solemnly, frightened at the history of the place. I will try never to be proud or jealous or cruel. We are Flemings, we four, and I as much a Fleming as any one of them now, and we must not make their mistakes. God helping us, she thought, remembering the little nun who had years ago read the Sermon on the Mount to a class of inattentive little girls so many times. We will all be good and meek and merciful, and some day, years and years from now, we will come back to Wastewater again and rebuild it. Goodbye, Wastewater she had whispered, leaning back to look through the glass window of the motor-car. And from beyond the ruins, the ashes, the bare garden, and the moonlit sea, the island lights had flashed her an answer. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 of The Black Flemings by Kathleen Norris This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER Twenty. It was more than a long year later that David Fleming, driving the car that Sylvia had ordered with such happy confidence before that long-awaited twenty-first birthday, left Crowchester and followed the familiar road along the cliffs. The spring was early, and the sweetness of it was already in the air. There were patches of emerald grass in sheltered places and all the rich warm milky odors of turned earth and fruit blossoms, new leaves and the first hardy lilacs. Babies in sheltered coaches were airing along the little streets of Keyport, and if the restless little breezes and the sunless shadows were chilly, in the sunlight there was a delicious warmth. The familiar dips and turns of the road were all like so many welcoming faces to David and when he reached the boundaries of wastewater he might almost have fancied for a moment that the old order of things had remained unchanged that back of that barrier of great trees now trembling into tiny dots of palest green he might indeed find the grim dark building the shuttered windows the dank unhealthy shrubs and paths that had been the first home of his recollection the brick walls and the iron gates more deeply bedded than ever in fallen leaves and mold, were unchanged, but the road between them, so many years unused, had been somewhat cut by wheels, and had been churned into mud. 
It stood open, but David left his car outside, got out and turned his back to the land for a moment, standing staring out to sea, as he had done upon that autumn day more than two years ago, that dreary, dark October day when Gabriella had first come home. He remembered, as his eyes idly followed the scrambling path down between the rocks and the bare mallow bushes to the shore, the muggy smells that had always assaulted his nostrils when the big side door of wastewater had been opened, the smell of distant soup bones, dust, horsehair furniture, decaying wood, stifling coal fires that smoked. He remembered his aunt, rigid and stern, before the fire, her apprehensive nervous eyes always moving behind him when he entered the room, and searching there for some menace always feared and never realized. He remembered the lamps, the antimacassars, the booming voices of the maids in the gloomy halls. And then Gabriella, in her velvet gown, with her big starry eyes. Gabriella, so young and so alone, met by such staggering blows, such bitter truths. Gabriella, watching Sylvia's youth and happy fortune so wistfully, bearing her own sorrows and burdens with her own inimitable childish courage and dignity. What a time, what a time, the man mused, his breast rising on a great sigh as he shook his head slowly. Sylvia's majority, and then Tom's return, Aunt Flora's stupefying revelation as to Gay's parentage, and then the last scene, or almost the last, when he had gone upstairs to tell them, Gabriella and Tom, that they were brother and sister, and the great wind and the fire had trapped them there. So that had been the end of Wastewater, with these four young persons, all Flemings, flying for their lives through the night, and Aunt Flora, who had spent all her life there, killed by the falling of all her moral and material walls in one terrible crash. She had lain for almost twenty-four hours in John's dismantled house, without pain of body, and in a lulled state even of mind, but she had been dying none the less. David had reviewed a hundred times the dark and forbidding afternoon, the ugly red of the sunset as it shone upon the walls, and the memory of Aunt Flora's sunken face against the pillows, the memory of her monotonous weary voice. The last of her generation, that stormy and ill-governed generation whose passions and weakness had filled the whole house with tragedies for so many years, she had died very quietly, quite as if going to sleep, before the ashes of the old place had been cold. Sylvia, beautiful, twenty-one, her own life as truly in ruins and ashes about her, had been kneeling beside her mother at the end, the doctor standing gravely near, and David himself watching them all with that strange quality of responsibility that seemed to be his destiny, where each and every one of them was concerned. Afterward, Tom had taken the girls into Boston, where Sylvia, ill from shock and sorrow, had been left in the care of Gabriella and a nurse, while Tom and David went back to Wastewater for the funeral. David, reaching this point, turned back and looked across the old garden to find a glint of headstones far up the northwest corner of the estate, beyond the woods, and under a fountain of delicate blue-green willow whips. Much of the garden was left after only one season's neglect, he mused, and could be reclaimed. 
there were healthy-looking roses and the splendid hedge of lilacs was already bursting from hard brown buds into white and lavender plumes the conifers looked clean and fresh in their new tips even the maples and elms were magnificent as ever an odd new look of something like pioneer roughness had been given the place however by the raw woodpiles gay's one stipulation david smiled to remember in one of the few allusions she had made to the subject had been in reference to the heavy evergreen shrubbery close to the house mightn't she had put it so although all this land was hers now mightn't a lot of those ugly old pines and cypresses come down down they had accordingly come to be chopped and piled into substantial stacks against some coming winter also stacked and piled were the bricks that had been wastewater the thousands and hundreds of thousands of bricks that had been scraped and aligned into long solid blocks some day david mused there would be a home here again but when the young persons most concerned had not yet definitely stated he sighed as he thought of them and smiled above the sigh a start had been made at least there was a handsome building already standing a long low barn of friendly warm clinkered brick with the wide new doors of a garage at one end and at the other across an arch beyond which cows and horses might be fenced some day was a homely comfortable cottage of the type that faces a thousand english lanes steep roof cut by white curtained dormers lattice deep windows against which vines were already trained and a hooded doorway with a brass knocker an airedale whirling about the corner of the building with a wild flourish leaped upon david in welcome and immediately curled himself rapturously in the short film of the grass with all four feet in the air writhing in puppy ecstasies here here ben david said laughing grow up it's ridiculous to see a dog of your age acting that way but he was rubbing and tasseling the rough head affectionately none the less as he called etta john in answer etta john's wife appeared with an undisturbed smile for the months of building last fall and again this spring mr david had been living in his little keyport farmhouse and might be expected here at almost any minute to inspect and approve etta herself had watched so much of the rebuilding with secret contempt it seemed odd when one could afford a nice square plastered house and a corrugated iron barn to waste twice as much money on what john considered monkey shines but miss gabriella and miss sylvia and mr tom had all been away for more than a year now in california and mexico and panama and now it was central america and dear knows what it would be next and consequently mr david and his friend mr rucker had had it all their own way etta had no objection to mr rucker who was always so kind and polite and funny too if you always understood just what he meant but she could not understand why he should drag in talk about swedish farmhouses and oxford i don't know anything about oxford etta had more than once commented to her husband but i do know that swedes all get here as fast as they can and why any one would want to bring their clumsy-looking old barns after them beats me mr rucker was showing me the pictures in a book 
it looks like something a child would make with blocks if you'd ask me i told him i hope when they build a house it's going to look decent john might answer uneasily i don't know what better they'd want than three stories with plenty of bay windows and porches i seen one picture mr david had in a book with all the roofs kinder sloping down into the garden and the windows all different sizes and levels mr rucker says he has some old leaded windows from a bar-room that's what he said for the library i had davis over to the lumber company sent him a catalogue and mark all the new doors and windows with a blue pencil but i don't know if he got it Today david gave etta an opportunity for criticism when he said cheerfully as she somewhat reluctantly accompanied him about the place how's the house etta comfortable oh we're quite comfortable thank you etta answered primly in a faintly complaining tone and john's got the italians engaged to start the side garden anyway before the folks get back but here's the thing that i'll never get through my head etta added with the readiness of an already well-aired grievance as she looked up at the wide archway and its casement windows above it don't seem sensible to have that arch or gate or whatever you call it making the barn and the house into one as far as needing the room goes we'll never need it for john would no more think of going through that way for the hay than flying over the moon i was thinking it would look handsomer to have the barn separate and while the men are right here and before miss gabriella gets home to look at the plans for a house and dear knows when that will be now why they could tear out that arch real easy and smooth the brick up so that it'd never show and it does seem as if it'd be more christian more like the way other places look places like the smiths over to tinsel's that have millions of dollars but their house looks so neat and square ah they've got the stable foundation started david said in satisfaction paying no attention to etta's remarks oh yes sir they got the cement in day before yesterday etta diverted answered in the same placid whine that's fine david said nodding to the various workmen as he walked about room for four cows and about that many horses and some day we'll put a chicken run on that end do they say when they'll be coming back sir etta asked any time this summer i suppose david said mr tom is quite himself again too well in fact miss sylvia wrote i think she and miss gabriella would have been glad to come straight home from san francisco but mr tom saw the masts of ships again and that was enough he wired they wanted me to go around the world with them but eventually they seem to have compromised on panama i've not had letters yet but in a telegram a few days ago i told you that there was some talk of central america dear me said etta who always made this remark in any pause haven't there been changes that grand old house john says it cost a million dollars to rebuild it now it does seem such a pity it had to burn down the insurance david said consolingly will more than build a much prettier and more home-like wastewater oh i don't know etta said with the relished pessimism of an old servant i was wondering if mr rucker had seen them pretty plastered houses over to the crochester manor estates she asked adroitly 
David did not answer. He looked at the mud-spattered and torn blueprint that was anchored from the coquettish spring breezes upon a plank with two brick bats, murmured to the contractor, suggested, approved. It was easy for his thoughts to find Gabriella at Wastewater, for they were almost all of her in these days, and it was here that she had spent her life, except her school years. David had no recollection of her in any other setting. Today, as always, she seemed to be beside him, walking through the strangely altered spring garden, talking with him of the changes to be. She had borne herself, he had thought, with his affectionate quiet pride in her caring as ever an undercurrent of pain. She had borne herself in the trying time of readjustments and changes better than all of them. There was a native dignity, a fineness about her, that made it possible for her apparently to forget herself entirely. As he remembered her, in the few weeks that had intervened between her departure with Tom and Sylvia for the West, in old Margaret's care, it was difficult to recall any special demonstration of her own feelings at all. Sylvia had been actually, if not seriously, ill. Tom had suffered a dangerous relapse after the strain and exposure of the night, but Gay had been just her usual self. David had had a thousand cares. First, to establish them temporarily in a comfortable hotel, then to commence the endless business of placing Gabriella in her rightful position, with all it involved in the matter of taxes, transfers, legal delays of every sort. He had written to the faraway Hannah Rosecrans in Australia, and had a prompt and satisfactory reply. Hannah was Mrs. Tarwood now, with children of her own. She gladly and unsuspiciously supplied a hundred details. The Fleming's baby's first nurse's name at the big hospital, the name of a young doctor who had more than once come to see little Gabriella in her first delicate weeks of life. Through these and Flora's other clues David established the matter legally beyond all doubt, and Tom simplified the question of property division by being eager to reserve about only one-fifth of his father's estate for himself, giving his half-sister everything else. Wastewater, the jewels, this piece of property, that other, this stock and those bonds, everything in short, about which division might have presented the slightest difficulty, Tom would have impatiently discarded in her favor. He was going to die anyway, he would remind them. Beyond all this, David had Sylvia's inheritance to handle. Flora had left a will, but it was superseded by an urgent note to her daughter, written at the time when Sylvia was supposed heiress to the whole Fleming fortune, begging her to make over her own money to Gabriella. Sylvia, hysterical and sensitive and unreasonable, had still persisted that this must be done. Gay, she protested in floods of shamed tears, had been wronged long enough. No, it must be all, all gays, and she, Sylvia, would go forth into the world penniless and make her own way. She would be happier so. It had been Gay, patient and serious, in her new black, who had talked her into a healthier frame of mind. Gay had sat beside her cousin's bed, smiling, talking occasionally, interesting Sylvia in the various phases of the business as they had come up, 
had managed both invalids and the whole comfortable suite and had joined david to affix a signature or witness a deed as quietly as if this earthquake had touched her personally not at all most admirable he thought had been her attitude with tom from the strange disorganized winter day of aunt flora's death gay had been quite simply affectionately and appreciatively tom's little sister there had been no scenes no hysteria no superfluous words david did not even suppose that the sister and brother had discussed the subject immediately and with a youthful and almost childish grace that david remembering would recall with suddenly blinking eyes she had adopted big clumsy unpolished tom in three days quite without awkwardness if with a sometimes slightly heightened color he had heard her speak of my brother to doctors nurses waiters in the hotel she had carried tom he realized now by storm by the sheer force of her own extraordinary personality if tom had ever been in any doubt as to the fashion of recommencing their friendship along these wholly altered lines gabriella had instantly dispelled it more she had given tom as a brother ten times the visible affection and confidence that she had been willing to give him in any other relationship gabriella had been afraid to be too friendly before now she was free to laugh with him to spoil him to tease him to sit on the edge of his bed and hold his big hard hand while she recounted to him her daily adventures and tom had proved quite unconsciously by his pathetically eager and proud acceptance of this new state of affairs that it was her companionship her sympathy he had wanted he had wanted to be a little needed a little admired to be of some consequence to david to the admirable sylvia and lastly to inconsiderable and neglected little gabriella he had seized upon his half-brotherhood with her as he had never developed exactly the same relationship with david indeed so consummately wise had been this child's for david thought of her as scarcely more than a child this child's handling of the situation that within a week of the change tom's tone had actually taken on the half-proud half-chiding note of an adoring elder brother and david had seen in his eyes the pleased recognition of the fact that at least no one else was or could be gabriella's family but himself tom's condition appearing to be supremely unsatisfactory there had immediately been talk of southern california or florida for the winter for sylvia who was strangely shaken quiet and unlike herself even when physically well again it seemed a wise solution too gabriella was of course to accompany her brother and david must follow as soon as all their complicated affairs permitted saying good-bye to the little black-clad group when he had escorted them as far as chicago david had returned somewhat sadly to his duties as doubly trebly an executor his canvases and the lonely painting of the first snows and after that the months had somehow slipped by in a very chain of delays and complications upon the only occasion when david had actually been packed and ready to start for the west a telegram from his closest friend jim rucker or rather from jim's wife in canada relative to an accident 
illness, and the need of his help, had taken him far up into the Winnipeg woods instead. Had the three Flemings been in La Crescenta, high and dry above ocean in the valleys of southern California, where they had at first quite established themselves, with a piano and a garden and a telephone, David might have joined them during the second summer. But by this time Tom was entirely well again, perfectly able to live in the East, winter and summer if he liked. But catch me doing it, wrote Tom, in his large sprawling hand, and the travelers had gone into Mexico. Do for heaven's sakes be careful, Gay, David had written anxiously. You appear to be the brains of the expedition. You may get into hot water down there. Sylvia, on the contrary, is the brains of the expedition, as you so elegantly phrase it, Gabriella had answered cheerfully, and as to getting into trouble, no such luck. Then they were in San Francisco again, and David, with a muffled hammering going on steadily in his heart when he thought of seeing Gay again, had been expectant of a wire saying that any day might find them turning eastward. But no, for Tom had caught sight of all the huddled masts in the San Francisco harbor, the mysterious thrilling hulls that say Marseille and Sydney and Rio de Janeiro, and he had been all for Australia, all for South America, had compromised finally upon Panama. That was two months ago. Now, perhaps still feeling that the late New England spring would be chilly, they were apparently off for Guatemala and Honduras. David could school his heart the better to patience because he had no hope. No hope even in her obscure little friendless days, really, of winning Gabriella, and less hope now. His attitude toward all women, as he himself sometimes vaguely sensed, was one of an odd simplicity. They seemed miraculous to David. They interested him strangely and deeply as beings whose lightest word had a mysterious significance. If he had once loved Sylvia dearly, loyally, admiringly, and he knew that for almost all her life he had, then what he felt toward Gabriella was entirely different. There was no peace in it, no sanity, no pleasure. It burned, an uncomfortable and incessant pain, behind every other thought, it penetrated into every tiniest event and act of his life. The mail to David nowadays meant either nothing or everything. Usually it was nothing. Once a month perhaps it glowed and sparkled with one of those disreputable and miscellaneous little envelopes that Gabriella affected. Sometimes a hotel sheet, sometimes a line shiny page torn from an account book, but always exquisite to David because of the fine square crowded writing and the delicious freedom and cleverness of the phrases. For two or three days a letter would make him exquisitely happy. He always put off the work of answering for a fortnight if possible, but sometimes he could not wait so long to savor more fully the privilege he felt it to be, and to lessen the interval before the next letter from her. When his answer had gone, there was always a time of blankness. David would walk past the Keyport post office, go back, ask casually if there were letters. No matter. But when something approaching a fortnight passed, 
he would find himself thinking of nothing else but that precious little sheet find himself declining invitations to boston or new york for fear of missing it for an unnecessary few days find himself wiring rucker in the latter place if letters for me please forward for the rest when sylvia wrote with charming regularity every week gabriella was of course always mentioned and almost always in a way that gave david more pain than pleasure the doctor sylvia might write for example of course madly in love with gay had said this or that about tom stain where he was or our fellow traveller whose son is the nice yale boy has taken a great fancy to my humble self perhaps in self-defence as the boy can see nothing but gabriella gabriella got a blue hat and a dark suit in san francisco and looked stunning gabriella wanted to add a line and there added would be the precious line love i am writing what david suffered during these crowded months that were yet so empty without only david knew he knew now that whatever his feeling was it was the only emotion of any importance that he had ever known in his life the departure for the war front five years before somewhat reminded him of it but after all those feelings had been faint and vague compared to these buying his uniforms equipping his bag cutting every tie with his old life facing the utterly unknown in the new david remembered feeling some such utter obsession and excitement as he felt now but after the thrilling commencement that military life had faded into the stupidity of mismanaged training for what he had felt to be an ill-conceived purpose david could only remember it now as a boy's blind exultation and enthusiasm this other thing was the realest in the world the devouring need of a man for the one woman the beautiful inaccessible wonderful woman who could never again lost or won be put out of his life david was perhaps not so much humble as unanalytical he had never felt himself a particularly desirable husband although at one time studying sylvia's future prospects with his characteristic interest and concern he had been obliged to recognize the fact that her marriage to him would be an extremely suitable thing now he felt that nothing about him was suitable or desirable no woman could possibly contemplate marriage with him with any enthusiasm least of all this beautiful woman of twenty whose wealth was the smallest of her advantages david was not a particularly successful painter past thirty leading the quietest and least thrilling of lives it was a part of the conscientiousness that these brilliant flemings and their exactions had bred in him that he felt himself in honor bound now not to complicate gabriella's problems by any hint of his own personal hopes or fears she needed him too much in the management of her own and tom's business for that self-consciousness between them would have been a fresh trial for her just emerging from too many changes and sorrows wastewater was all hers now for tom did not care to live there even if it had been the wisest thing in the world for him to do he had deeded it all to her and she and rucker had held a casual correspondence regarding the new barns in john's house and the prospect of a new wastewater 
it must be rambly and irregular gabriella had stipulated perhaps a little like one of those french farmhouses of creamy white brick with the red roofs it must have one long nice room with an open fireplace at the end where supper or breakfast could be brought in if it was snowing and she would love a hall with glass doors and fan lights at the front and back so that when you stood at the front door on a hot summer day you could see wallflowers and gillies and things all growing in the back garden right straight through the house rucker who did a good deal of this sort of thing had been immensely interested indeed he and his wife and the tiny baby were established at keyport with david now so that his summer holidays and weekends might be spent in the neighborhood he had submitted certain plans to gabriella in los angeles and gabriella had wired her approval for mexico city now they were to commence building but with some agitation on the part of rucker who made worried references to moving the hollies and saving those copper beeches and maples on the north front mr rucker got those red tiles john david said to-day to the foreman and they come fourteen inches square so just give me an idea in a day or two how large that terrace is there's mr rucker now etta said disconsolately as a ford came in the service gate and turned toward the barns no it isn't she added peering they all looked in that direction as the car stopped and a young woman jumped out and dismissed it and came toward them end of chapter twenty chapter twenty one part one of the black flemings by kathleen norris this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty one part one she was tall and wearing a dark blue suit under a belted brown coat a loose rich sable skin about her shoulders a blue hat bright with cornflowers was pressed down over her sunny hair david's heart gave a great plunge raced stopped short and began to plunge again it was really gabriella but she was so beautiful she was so graceful and swift and young and radiant as she came toward them that david was incapable of speech bereft of all emotion except the overpowering realization of what she meant to him the day became incredibly glorious became spring indeed when she put both her warm hands in his and held him at arm's length and looked at him and then at the reconstruction and the green about her with a great sigh of relief and joy that was half a sob perhaps her own emotions were also unexpectedly overwhelming for even while she laughed and greeted etta and john and the dog with quite her usual gaiety david noticed an occasional break in her eager voice and a film of tears in her shining eyes oh david wastewater again she said if you knew if you knew how hungry i've been for the old place oh david what a wonderful barn but isn't it delicious and that's your house etta and it looks so comfortable like a little english inn and the arch david it's all so wonderful oh do tell me everything everyone i'm so glad to get home he had known that he loved her but david had never dreamed that he could love her like this to see her take off the heavy brown coat and consign it and the fur to etta 
and to have her straighten her little white frills at throat and wrists of the trim little dark suit in just her old busy way and to have her fairly dance along at his side excitedly inspecting all that had happened and was to happen was to be transported for david straight into a country of no laws and no precedents gay sweet and blue-eyed and husky of voice gay slender and eager and responsive gay home again but let me tell ed and john my news before we leave them she had said in the first rush of greetings who do you think has just got married not you miss gabriella although goodness knows you look happy enough for anything etta had said cheered in spite of her determined efforts to resist not i do you hear her david no i'm to be next gabriella had answered with a gaiety that stabbed david to the heart no but miss sylvia and mr tom were married a month ago before we ever left san francisco she added joyously good grief etta said in a hushed voice david only fixed astonished and suddenly enlightened eyes upon the girl's face married in san francisco gabriella repeated nodding triumphantly you're not one bit more surprised than i am well yes for i did suspect it she added more moderately i knew that they were falling in love with each other of course but i never dreamed that they had done it until we were three days out then sylvia wouldn't let me wireless because she said everybody on the boat would know so we went on to panama and then she and tom wanted to go on farther and margaret and i wanted to come home and here i am etta was by this time sufficiently recovered from her stupefaction to ask for further details and david watching gabriella as she half laughingly and half seriously gave them had time to appreciate how the girl had grown into womanhood in this time of absence with a sort of negligent readiness and yet with a certain dignity too she satisfied the eager questions of the older man and woman all the while reserving he could see the more intimate narrative for his ears alone they were not to be alone immediately however for etta and john accompanied them through the barns etta harping plaintively upon the quality of the buildings now in course of erection in the crochester manor estates but you won't want a big house here all by yourself them crochester houses are handsomer than any mr rucker ever showed me etta said i had breakfast with mrs rucker isn't she always the nicest person gabriella was thereby reminded to tell him and what a ducky baby we got into new york yesterday morning you know and came up on the night train i went straight to your keyport house hoping to find you but you'd just gone i left all my things there and of course i'm to stay there tonight you won't be going away again miss gabriella john asked why that depends she looked at david in a little confusion looked back into the sweet open spaces of the barn i may go to england she began looks like you might be surprising us too one of these days etta said shrewd and curious david glanced quickly at the girl she was walking beside etta you wouldn't want me to be an old maid etta she asked once more with that new poised manner no ma'am etta said positively 
we certainly need some new life about the place i was saying to john a few days ago i hope both the girls would get married well gabriella said with a somewhat dreamy expression in her blue eyes then let's hope we will and david although she immediately changed the subject by speaking of the kitchen yard of the new house was certain that he saw the color creep up under her clear skin and the hint of a mysterious smile don't shock us with too many surprises in one morning gabriella he warned her trying to smile naturally ah uh, no i shall save something and let things appear by degrees she answered cheerfully brick wall here david brick wall here joining the stable wall in a long line with the poplars back of it he agreed with a suddenly cold heavy heart jim has managed to save the poplars you see and all the kitchen matters will be reached through a little round-topped gate in the wall about here and the dining-room windows looking out here where all the lilacs are with a sort of portico an open court tiled here on the north front where it will be cool in the afternoons david it's so much more wonderful than i dreamed it would be imagine a new wastewater all sunshine and happiness instead of that terrible old barrack full of jealousy and secrets and plots isn't it like a fairy tale to think that life can be so sweet gay there's no sweetness that you don't deserve david said suddenly as they followed the others after that defrauded childhood and all the shocks and sorrows you had when you first came home two years ago nothing could be too much i feel now the girl answered seriously as if on that last night of fire and horror and bewilderment the whole dreadful thing had been burned out cauterized made clean once and for all and that now we can start a new order i don't know as there's a prettier place anywhere than brown's said edda's mildly complaining voice if she has one window she has a hundred edda gabriella said briskly paying no attention have you some chops mr david and i are going to have our lunch down on the shore and will you make us some coffee etta and give us matches and butter and all the rest of it it's half past eleven now and we'll want to start about one now show me everything david and tell me ten thousand things about everything john have you those blueprints david out of whose sky the sun had dropped leaving everything dark and gray asked the foreman the plans for the house that looked sort of slumped down with the roof two stories deep john asked as one anxious to cooperate intelligently certainly the only ones we have david answered impatiently gabriella bent suddenly over the dog but when she and david were strolling away through the perfumed warmth and the sweet young green of the garden she asked with her old wide-eyed delighted smile john and etta don't approve of mr rucker's plans but david's heart was too sick for laughter you really may be following sylvia's example one of these days gabriella instantly the clear warm skin was flooded with color and an oddly troubled look came into her beautiful eyes well i suppose so david spoke smilingly but with rather a dry mouth you got over you forgot the man of whom you told me more than two years ago no she answered briefly you mean that you have seen him again oh yes 
Ah, David said, blindly trying to say something that should avert her too close scrutiny. I see. He felt his heart leaden. It was with sort of physical difficulty that he guided her through the new wastewater that was yet in so many ways the old. So much was his anyway, he told himself. This day of her dear companionship, this luncheon on the rocks, this monopoly of her husky and wonderful voice, her earnest, quick glances, her laughter, were his for a little while. Even over the utter desolation of his spirit, he was won to an exquisite and yet agonizing happiness by his nearness of all her sweetness and charm again. First, she must see the plans. They sat down upon a pile of clear lumber in the trembling green shade of overhanging maple branches, and pegged the fluttering blue sheets with bits of rock and bent over them. And now, as she eagerly identified the placing of casement windows and brick terraces, she was so close to David that the actual flowery fragrance of her, and her warm, satin-smooth hand occasionally touched his. She had laid aside her big coat, and looked a little less impressive in the plain little suit and delicate white frills, and somehow all the more her own wonderful self, the eager, busy, interested little gay of years ago. "'David, see here, dear,' she added the little word so unconsciously, he thought, with a pang. "'See here, dear, these two rooms upstairs will be almost empty, this with the north light, in case my smart cousin should want to do some painting. Do you mean that you and Tom and Sylvia really plan to make your home here? David asked. As for Tom, I can't say. He and Sylvia will surely spend their summers here. But this will always be home, headquarters for me, Gay said. And she laid her beautiful hand upon the blueprints almost with a caress. My little house, she said lovingly, with its chimney seats and casement windows, and we must have roses and hollyhocks jammed up against them in summer, and with its darling white woodwork and pink and blue papers, and with its little breakfast room looking over the sea. Not so little, David warned her. You will have a dozen rooms, you know, besides the servants' quarters in that high roof that John dislikes so heartily. Little beside all those high brick walls and wings and windows of the old wastewater, she countered. Poor unhappy wastewater, she said more than once as they walked slowly about in the increasing warmth of the day. Six semper tyrannis, and she touched the neatly ranked bricks with a gentle hand. We could build ten houses, couldn't we? You will have enough bricks there to do everything you ever want to. Walls, bathhouses, paths, new buildings, David assured her. Gabriella had picked a plume of purple lilac. She slowly twirled it and sniffed it as they walked. The late morning was so still that they could hear an occasional distant cock crow. Silence, fragrance, and the sweetness of expanding life lay upon the world like a spell. "'Do you see that angle of land there?' the girl asked presently, when with their lunch-basket they were going toward the shore. "'There, just beyond the spit, with its own little curve of bay, that never seemed quite to belong to the rest of the place.' "'You could sell it,' David suggested, catching her firm hand in his as she cautiously followed him down the rocky path. "'Oh, no, I don't mean that.' 
but you see what a cunning little homestead it would make all by itself gabriella said making her way to their old favorite spot and beginning the preparations for a little driftwood fire it has good trees and that line of silver birches and it has dogwoods i was wondering if tom and sylvia wouldn't like a house there all their own no responsibility a place they could shut up and leave when they wanted to wander then they are not going to live with her david thought with his heart sinking again she had been talking about them in a desultory fashion all morning but when the coffee was boiling and the buns toasted and the chops dripping and sizzling she settled herself back comfortably against the rocks and gave him the story consecutively sylvia is a changed person in a lot of ways gay said with relish and in other ways she is exactly what she always was and always will be she has the you take cream david she has the family pride only it takes a rather nice form with her the form of self-respect sylvia must she simply must respect herself and after poor aunt flora died what with having lost her fortune and then having to bear what she considered and what really was a terrible blow to her pride poor sylvia really suffered terribly she kept trying to analyze how she felt and convinced me about it and i know that's what made her ill she couldn't quite get used to not being what should i call it admirable superb superior that was always my old word for her she talked about college courses and i think she must have written the dean about it but perhaps she wasn't much encouraged after all sylvia only twenty-two and perhaps professors have to be a little older so we drifted down to southern california sylvia in mourning of course and not taking any interest in anything and tom worse but when we got to la crescenta suddenly we all felt better tom began to eat and sleep sylvia and i took long walks we even went into los angeles to concerts and in no time she found that she could still be superior with tom he began to admire her tremendously he thought she knew everything but never in my life have i seen sylvia so well so gentle with anybody as she was with tom she began to make too much of what he knew regularly draw him out he speaks very good spanish you know and you can use spanish a good deal there sylvia talked to him about boats navigation places he had been and we hadn't and all the time and gabriella's eyes danced all the time it was just as if she was afraid of breaking the spell she had put on herself if you know what i mean david i think i do meanwhile the girl resumed with keen enjoyment tom was changing too he's gotten finer in a funny sort of way his voice has grown finer and he he just stares at sylvia whatever she does and smiles at whatever she says and he's like a lion on a string her joyous laugh was infectious and david laughed in spite of himself about this is april about christmas time gay resumed i began to notice it tom was funny and humble and quiet with sylvia and sylvia was bent upon making much of tom she quoted him i don't know whether i can convey this to you but she'd say to me so seriously 
Tom says the rain isn't over. Tom doesn't like Dr. Madison. He thinks his manner with us is a little too assured. That sort of thing. Gabriella explained, frowning faintly despite her smile, in her eagerness to make him understand her. Well, we went to San Francisco, and there I really did have the best time I've ever had in my life, Gabriella said. The Montalan girls were there, with their brother, and we had some wonderful parties. We went through Chinatown, and out to the beach, and up the mountains, and everywhere. And I suppose I hadn't been noticing Sylvia very closely, because, after the Montalans left— Oh, they left, did they? David, interested in the brother, asked. Yes, they came straight home. It's the Montalans, Gabriella said, parenthetically, that want me to go abroad with them in June. I see. Will the brother go? Oh, I think so. I see, but go on, about Sylvia. Well, when they left, Sylvia suddenly seemed so odd. She cried a good deal, and she was quite cranky, not a bit like herself. By this time we were all getting ready for the Panama trip. Margaret thought that perhaps it was young Bart Montalan who is a perfectly stunning fellow in diplomacy, Gabriella elaborated. I remember him, David said briefly. But one day Sylvia broke down and cried for an hour, Gabriella said. It was the day before we sailed, and we were at the Fairmont. It almost drove me wild. It had been a real responsibility anyway, the girl interrupted herself to remind him. When we left here I was worried sick about Tom. We were all blue and dazed, and really I'd had it all on my mind until I got a little nervous. I coaxed Sylvia and petted her, and finally she told me that he had asked her to marry him. And there I made my first mistake, Gay added, widening her eyes so innocently at David that he laughed aloud. I said, trying to be sympathetic, you know, and of course you wouldn't. And she got rather red and looked straight at me and said, Why shouldn't I? I said rather feebly, Well, I didn't know you cared about him. And she said, I don't. But I consider him in every way one of the finest men I ever knew. Of course, I said, I did too. Then she began to cry, and said that she was entirely alone in the world, all that, Gay resumed. And she said that any woman would be proud to marry Tom, but that she was afraid everyone would think she was influenced by the thought of his money. And what did you say to that? David asked, diverted. Gabriella gave him her gravely wise look and the beautiful face, flushed with the warmth of the day and shaded by the blue hat, was so near that David lost the thread of her words for a few seconds, in sheer marveling at her beauty. I said I did not think that that should be a consideration, she answered. I said that no one had thought that of you, when you were engaged to her, she added, after a moment, and with a sudden smile. David, who was leaning back against the rock, and had his arms folded, flushed a little in his turn. I don't think that was ever really an engagement, he offered. And remembering suddenly that he had terminated what had been a rather definite understanding with Sylvia, simply that he might offer Gabriella his name and his protection, he had an instant of being hardly able to believe himself the same man. 
So then we all left the next morning. That was fun, the girl went on. The ship was delightful, and nobody was sick. And it was a January day as warm and green as June. And Tom was just wild with high spirits. I never saw him so gay. And well he might be, for he and Sylvia had been married that morning. Sylvia, on the other hand, acted very queerly, cried a good deal, stuck close to me and seemed cross. Once when I asked her if it was Tom that was worrying her, she said savagely, no, that she wished she had never seen Tom Fleming, and that he had wrecked her happiness for life. And she went back to Aunt Flora's old talk, Gabriella added seriously, about the curse on the Flemings and all that. She would hardly speak to Tom. And I can tell you, David, the girl interrupted herself again to say, I didn't anticipate a particularly pleasant trip to Panama. Tom seemed queer, too, and Margaret told me that she thought the whole thing was a mistake. I remembered afterward that Sylvie had talked a good deal about the annulment of marriages on those first few days. She kept telling me that for a woman an annulment had no value, because any honorable woman would feel herself just as much bound after it as before, but it would at least set the man free. That was two days after we sailed and it was that very night that I was playing cribbage with the old captain, who was a perfect old Scottish darling, and afterward went upon the bridge with him. And when I was slipping down to my room, knowing that Margaret would be out of her senses with anxiety, and Sylvia hunting for me, perhaps, I passed a man and a woman at the rail. It was midnight, and there was no moon, but as I went by I heard the man's voice, and it was Tom's. And then I saw that the woman was Sylvia, and that she was crying. Tom was sort of growling. You know how he talks when he is a little angry and a little ill at ease. And I heard Sylvia say the word annulment. I can't stand it, Tom. It was all a silly mistake, she said. You can't talk like that, Sylvia, Tom said, in a sort of shocked voice. Suddenly the whole thing came to me, Gabriella said with all a child's wondering, delighted stare fixed upon David. And I went straight up to them and put my arm about them from behind and said, Tell me about it. I know you're married. Of course, I was delighted. Much more so than you can believe. I didn't have to pretend that. Because I had had a sort of fear that once they both got back to their natural surroundings, Sylvia would get proud and collegy. You know what I mean? again the girl went on and that tom would begin to feel awkward and nothing would come of their affair so i made a great fuss cried really i was so excited and just then margaret came along the deck afraid i'd gone overboard or something and we told her and she laughed and cried and sylvia began to seem more normal especially when we went to our cabin and I said what a dear old fellow Tom was, and how he adored her. She began to smile, the way she does, you know, when she really doesn't want to smile, and began to talk pityingly about a very pretty English girl on board who had taken an immense fancy to him. Well, after that, and Gay's laugh was delicious to hear, you should have seen Sylvia. She glowed. I never saw her so handsome and so happy, and so, well, you know her, so superb. 
she was all the proud wife everything tom did was mysteriously perfect and everything he said she listened to with as much attention as if it were his dying words she quoted him she fenced herself off with him with rugs and deck chairs and books and read to him they walked round and round the deck together it seems as if sylvia must be a little superior on some count or other to be happy gay commented affectionately and amusedly now she's infinitely happy she is mrs tom fleming and she has a handsome rich husband who adores her and presently they'll have the most superior children and believe me the girl finished laughing sylvia will feel that just what those children do is the astonishing thing if any other child is taller she'll say it's weedy and has outgrown its strength and if any child is smarter she'll say it's unpleasantly precocious so you got to panama david prompted after a silence devoted to smiling musing and the warmth and sweetness of the day and the delicate whisper of the sea among the rocks so we got to panama and by this time mr and mrs tom fleming only wanted to be left alone gay resumed raising her blue eyes to smile at him so there were great debates they didn't want to wire you because such a wire is very apt to be noticed and they didn't quite want to come home in fact they planned this southern trip as a sort of supplementary honeymoon so as there was a charming navy woman a mrs stevens coming all the way up i was delighted to put myself and margaret in her care and that's all end of chapter twenty one part one chapter twenty one part two of the black flemings by kathleen norris this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty one part two she had packed the remains of their meal into the little basket in the old quick capable way that david so well remembered and now she descended to a certain little pool among the rocks and washed her hands pushing the frills of her cuffs back from her slender wrists as she did so and waving her hands in the air to dry them you've told me everything except your own affair gabriella david presently prompted when they were making their way up the cliff path to the garden my my own affair perhaps she had not understood for although she turned scarlet suddenly she made no further admission there is somebody you told me once david prompted her oh yes she dismissed it with a shrug that she said with a thoughtful note in her voice she added no more at the time the enchanted hours of the day moved to three o'clock but when david knowing her to be tired from the long trip and probably confused with all the changes and impressions suggested their return to keyport she showed a reluctance as definite as his own she had given him on this spring day of lingering lights and soft fragrance such a revelation of her own sweetness her own personality as made all his other recollections of her seem pale and dim every turn of her head every movement every direct look from her star sapphire eyes had deepened the old impression that there was nobody quite like her in the world nobody so gracious so quietly joyous 
nobody else at once so youthful and so wise a hundred times by some quality of being simply and eagerly happy just in the springtime and the garden and his company she reminded him of the long-ago little girl gabriella and yet at twenty david thought her already a woman they talked of the old wastewater as they planned and went to and fro busied with problems of the proportions and placing of the new of the family with its passions and hates its jealousies and weaknesses the new house gabriella said whimsically will stand as much for the new order as the old one did for the stupidities and affectations of the old it's all to be simple no affectations no great big gloomy basement regions for the servants they'll have their section as comfortable as sunshiny as the other there'll be open fires instead of the old hideous grates and rugs and clean floors instead of the old dirty hard and fast carpets and bathrooms full of tiles and sunshine and sleeping porches instead of all that horrible rep curtaining and there'll be her voice lowered there'll be people loving each other she said after all isn't that the answer to the whole problem women being loyal and generous instead of jealous and watching all the time men thinking of other people's happiness instead of having themselves painted in picturesque attitudes she finished laughing but her face was presently serious again they were idly wandering through the ruins of the garden now gabriella a little flushed and tumbled from the efforts of raising a bent rose-bush or straightening with a little air of anxiety and concentration that david thought somehow touchingly mother-like a sheaf of timidly budded whips that would some day be sweet with white syringa bloom she stopped at the old sundial and cleared the fallen packed damp leaves from its face with a stick and busied herself so earnestly about it that david thought her more like an adorable child and more like a responsible little housewife than ever he thought of the wife she would make some man some day and felt suddenly that he must get away out of the country anywhere before that time came you can't tell me your plans yet gabriella dear he said with a rather dry throat when they were beside the dial the girl's color deepened a little under the creamy skin and for a moment she did not answer then she said with a look straight into his eyes i could tell you as far as they have gone not unless you want to david answered from the other side of the dial which he gripped with fingers that were suddenly shaking the man of whom i spoke to you so long ago gabriella said presently i saw again this spring i see david said with a nod as she paused he did not marry the other woman then what other woman the girl demanded amazed i thought you said that he had cared for another woman ah ah yes so he had no he didn't marry her he is quite free said gabriella working busily you're very sure you care for him dear david said already relegated in his own mind to the sphere of advisory loving older brother yes she said with another upraised look i am sure i have never felt for anybody else what i do for him and i know now i never shall when i first saw him more than two years ago 
"'You saw him first, then?' "'Well, I had seen him as a child, but after I got home from Paris I saw him again,' the girl offered lucidly. "'I see. She was so radiant, she was so wonderful. If he should be some utter good-for-naught, David thought. Then I did not see him except occasionally,' Gabriella resumed. "'And when I did not see him, then I knew that logically, actually, he was everything I could love. A gentleman, kind, wise, admirable in every way.' "'Rich?' David asked, in silence and with a faint frown. "'No, not exactly poor, either. But does he know that you are rich, Gabriella?' "'I don't think it makes any difference to him,' the girl said thoughtfully after a moment. "'I don't suppose, of course, that it would,' David agreed immediately. "'No. So that when I was away from him, I had time to think it out logically and dispassionately, and I knew he was the one,' the girl resumed. "'And when I saw him, whenever we were together, although I couldn't think logically, or indeed think at all,' she said, laughing, and flushed, and meeting his eyes with a sort of defiant courage. I knew from the way I felt that there never could be, and never would be, anyone else. I see, of course, David said slowly. Both ways, Gabriella went on, smiling a little anxiously, I feel safe. When I'm not with him, I can reason about it. I can look forward to all the years, thinking of myself as older, as the mother of children, the girl went on seriously, her voice lowered to the essence of itself, her eyes upon the softly heaving and shining sea, thinking of the books, the tramps, the friendships we'll share. There is no moment of life that he will not make wonderful to me. Poverty, change, sorrow, travel, everything, she finished, looking up smiling, yet with the glitter of tears in her beautiful eyes. "'I—' David cleared his throat. "'I'm so glad you can tell me, eh?' he said a little gruffly. "'I love to tell you,' the girl said, with an illuminated look. "'It is settled, Gabriella?' "'No, not exactly. That is—' She colored violently, laughed and grew suddenly pale. "'No, it's not settled,' she answered confusedly. "'You can't tell me anything more?' David asked after a pause. "'Not now very well.' "'At least I think I can soon,' Gay said, laughing and flushed, yet oddly near. He could see two tears, too. "'I know that he cares for me,' she added after a brief silence. "'Has he told you?' "'Well, no, or yes. He has, too, in a way. But all that—' she broke off appealingly. "'Yes, I know,' David reassured her. "'You shall tell me when you're ready.' "'David, I suppose we should be going back,' the girl said reluctantly. But she did not change her comfortable position, resting against the dial, and looking alternately at its blackened old stone surface and across the shining sea. "'Presently. I hate to end today,' David answered simply. So do I. Hasn't it been a wonderful day? Doesn't it seem like the beginning of heavenly times? One of the happiest of my life, David said, trying to lighten the words with his old friendly smile, and failing. 
gabriella was silent and in the stillness all the sweet sounds of a spring afternoon made themselves heard the lisp of the sea the chirp of little birds flying low in short curving flights among the budding shrubs a banging door in the farmhouse and the distant sound of voices as the workmen put up their tools and started their motor engines the sun was sending long slanting rays down across the torn earth and the old garden and the piled bricks john's and edda's house joined by the simple curve of the arch to the long low roofs of the barn looked everything that was homelike and comfortable in the sinking glow i see summer suppers here in the court gabriella said presently in a low voice as if half to herself guest rooms all fresh and airy sylvia's children and my children drawing others here for picnics on the shore white dresses and the harvest moon coming up there across the sea as we've seen it rise so many hundreds of times i don't know which will be most wonderful david the long summers with the hollyhocks and the twilights or the winters with big fires and snow and company coming in all cold and laughing i do think of going abroad she added as for sheer pain david was silent but i find myself thinking most often of getting home again with all the trunks and excitement to settle again in wastewater you really are going abroad gabriella david asked and to himself he added honeymoon why i don't know to-night i don't feel as if i ever want to go outside these gates again i feel as if i wanted to stay right here watching them put every brick into place but you would like to go abroad again some day wouldn't you david oh i yes but that's different the man answered bringing himself into the conversation with a little self-consciousness yes david said slowly frowning into space with narrowed eyes i think i may go one of these days i would like to do some painting in florence another silence so exquisitely painful so poignantly sweet that david felt he might stand so forever watching her leaning in all her beauty and her fragrant youth against the grim old dial looking sometimes at him and sometimes off to sea with her glorious and thoughtful eyes david i got your message she said suddenly in a voice oddly compounded of amusement and daring and a sort of fear i'm glad david answered mechanically and then rousing himself he added in surprise what message on the little draft of the house plans gabriella answered serenely which plans were those dear the ones jim sent to san francisco he sent them to san francisco too late but they sent them on and we got them in panama did i send a message with them david asked not remembering it scribbled on the margin of one of them gabriella nodded a message to you david said in surprise well i read it so the girl fell silent and a robin with a warmly stained breast and a cocked head hopped nearer and nearer to them i don't remember david admitted after thought it was obvious that she wanted him to remember it but stupidly enough he seemed to have no recollection of it whatever i think it must really have been to jim rucker gabriella added innocently it began dear jim the blood came to david's face and he laughed confusedly 
I... Did I scribble something to Jim on the margin? I remember that we sent the plans back and forth a good deal, he said, in a sort of helpless appeal. I'll show it to you, Gabriella answered suddenly. She put her hand into her pocket and brought out a curled slip of paper that had been cut from the stiff oiled sheet of an architect's plans. Here, David, she invited him, read it with me and she flattened it upon the old dial and glanced at him over her shoulder. David, hardly knowing what he did, let his eyes fall upon the penciled words. He read, Dear Jim, No letter, but a message about her in one from Sylvia. Tell Mary I'm sorry I cut her dinner party. It was signed with David's own square, firm, unmistakable D. When I read that, said Gabriella, looking up with her face close to his, as he leaned at her shoulder. I knew that the man I loved loved me, and after that I couldn't get home fast enough. Gabriella, David said, trembling, and now she was in his arms. Is it really so, dear? Dearest and loveliest of women, do you mean what you say? Do you know what you are doing? I am not the brilliant sort of man you might marry, dear. I'll never be rich. Perhaps I'll never be successful. Ah, David, the girl answered, facing him now, with both hands upon his shoulders, as he held her with his arms lightly linked about her. Do let's not have any more misunderstandings and silences and half-said things at Wastewater. Tell me that you love me. There was a milky spring twilight in the old garden now. The sea had mysteriously blended itself with the sky and a mild great moon was rising before the last of the sun's radiance had fairly faded from the west. As the enervating warmth of the day died, delicious odors began to creep abroad in the dusk, and the plum-tree that had burst prematurely into bloom shone like a great pale bouquet against the gathering shadows. There were smells of grass and earth, the sweet breathing of a world worried after the unwanted hours of sunshine, there was the clean smell of new paint from the regions back of the farmhouse and barn. The birds were still now, and the very sea seemed hushed. And to both David and Gabriella, as they dreamed of the days to come, the golden days of responsibilities and joys unthinkable now, it seemed that no hour would eclipse this hour, when they too, children of the old place, found love among its ruins, and planned there for a better future. All the terrors, all the whispers, voices, fears and hates, all the secrets and conspiracies that had shadowed wastewater in its old and arrogant days were gone. Roger with his vanity and arrogance was gone, Lily with her tears, Cecily frightened and saddened in her youth, Flora with her dark repressions and thwarted love. Old Sylvia was gone, too, and in her academically complacent place was the much more human Mrs. Tom Fleming. And David was gone. Never again would he be only the dreamy, detached painter, the amused older brother and audience for the younger folk, the philosopher who looked at love dispassionately. David was a man now, and the thought of having this woman for his wife, the thought of the future, when they two would make a home together, forever and forever, as long as life should last, 
made him feel as shaken as awkward as humble and ignorant as the boy he had never really been all gone but there remained steadfast gray-eyed sometimes all mother sometimes all child always simple direct loving anxious for peace and harmony this tawny-headed waif who had drifted in among the black flemings so mysteriously who had flourished upon neglect and injustice who had borne sorrow and shame courageously and unfalteringly and who was now of them all left to be mistress here to begin the new history and the new line david we will go to florence together in the fall if we can tear ourselves away from our new house and you shall copy little Dizianis and Gordis. Ah, Gabriella, don't, my dear. I can't, I can't believe it. It seems too much. But we'll come back for a housewarming at Christmas time, David, and not miss one instant of the spring. Yes, my darling, David said. And we'll have days in the city, David, buying towels and muffin rings, the girl said rejoicingly and then you'll have an exhibition in april and won't you be proud of your nice furry wife walking about the pictures and listening to what people say i can hardly be prouder of her than i have always been gay silence her right hand was upon his shoulder and his arm was strong and warm about her david had only to bend his head to kiss the crown of her tawny uncovered hair the whole gracious fragrant woman was in his arms their left hands clasped rested upon the dial so resting they obscured the blackened old face that had serenely marked the hours under thin scotch suns under more than a hundred passionate years of the hotter suns of the new world they hid the old legend turn fleming spin again the crosset lines the kenterskine End of chapter 21 End of the Black Flemings by Kathleen Norris